Welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. Uh, today is kind of podcast anarchy because none of the usual hosts are here. I'm Nadia and I'm hosting here with Adam and we have a wonderful guest here today. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi everybody. Uh, my name is Jimam Khail Matta and I'm uh, right now talking to you from Beirut, Lebanon and it's midnight here and um little bit about myself. Let's see, I'm a writer and an actress, and I teach creative writing at, um, at a university here in Lebanon. I'm also the founder of the first bilingual storytelling platform here in the country. She's amazing. Um, thanks so much for being here today. <laughs> I met Dima first over the summer when we were uh, working together at the Sundance Lab, and it's just been like I learned about you both first through your writing and like working with Catherine Corey. And it's just like, so really, it was really amazing to like know you and get to know you over the summer. So I'm so excited we're doing this. I'm excited too. It was so good to spend time with you in the summer and also just having a fellow Arab and Egyptian just and I'm like, yes, yes. Give me that accent, please. <laughs> Wait, there are Egyptian gay people? No, probably I don't think anyway, like that. yeah, not a thing. Moving on, <laughs> yeah, let's start with um, learning more about like what you do, uh, Dima, and how you came into like the amalgamation of artistic practices and professional practices that you do, and how they intersected with your queerness. Sure, that's a very easy question. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> well, which artistic practice came first? Technically, acting, if you want to call it acting, but when I was a kid, I'm the youngest of four, and so I really was not getting any attention, right? It's like, oh, she's there, she's a thing. Um, and so I think I really started acting just to get my uh, family's attention. I just used to prepare little, uh, little skits and then perform in front of my family, and I think that's how it started. And it kind of just developed from there. Um, but I also always, always wrote. Just imagine stories. I mean, I come from a, from a family of storytellers. And um, storytelling and oral history is a huge part of Arab, Arabic culture. And so it kind of just made sense to, uh, to be that. So there's that. And then, uh, and then there's my queerness. Uh, which came along later, but well, debatable. But yes, it basically all started coming together through the storytelling platform that I founded. Three years ago, I hosted uh, the first LGBTQ plus storytelling night in the country, and it was definitely life-changing for me. And then from there on, I'm like, I definitely thought that I have to share my, my story that I can't just keep it to myself. I want to make art out of it. I want to share it with people. And that's how I wrote my first play. That's why I was at Sundance. And uh, that's where I met Adam. Yeah. And, and I know that you're... Because you, you did your MFA in creative writing rather than playwriting, right? Yeah. It was in fiction. I'm always really fascinated by the different ways that artists come to like performance in theater. And I'm curious what moved you to the world of theater from fiction and how specifically that was, you felt like that was useful in the context of Beirut. 
Well, so I've been I've been acting for the past 11 years, but I never thought I would write for the theater. And funnily enough, you know, I studied and wrote fiction for two years. And then as soon as I graduated, I stopped writing fiction. I thought, what am I doing? Reality is so much more interesting. You legit can't make this shit up right this is this is yeah. the definition of reality and so so i started writing nonfiction and then i thought that you know i was performing in these plays and i never had a character that resembled me that looked like me a queer woman on stage you know and so i thought well i'm either going to wait for that part to to come to life or to exist or i'm going to have to write it so i wrote it uh, what kinds of things were you acting in before you made this transition? Oh my gosh, all sorts of things. Let's see, I did a couple of uh, plays written by the Syrian playwright Sadallah Wannous. Yeah, um, I love Sadallah Wannous. He is amazing. So oh we did... Um, he's, I mean, they call him the Shakespeare of the Arab world. and You know, he died uh, on the day I was born. It's really sad. Um, oh, wow. That's kind of like prophetic or something. <laughs> 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 well, you know, what's, uh, what's interesting is that the day we opened, the play was also the um, International Day of, for, for Theater. And so his daughter uh, came and read the speech that he gave a few years before he died on the, you know, World Theater Day. And it was very moving. Wow, that's beautiful. So so you were saying that you acted in some of his plays, and then how did your, what happened from there? Um, I did um, some documentary theater. We um, did a play with Lina Abiyad where we interviewed uh, victims of um, domestic violence or intimate partner violence. And then we um, we told their stories on stage. I basically, I'm drawn to plays that deal with what's going on right now. So one of the plays was um, tackling the subject of the Syrian refugee crisis and, uh, and migration. And I actually, actually, I ended up doing a play about the Civil War. So that's not, some would argue that this is very contemporary because some would argue that we're still in a full-on civil war. Um, and so, so that was, that was interesting. It was a promenade uh, play. It was um, directed by Ali Khalidi. Promenade play as in literally outside? Is that a term? I don't know. Yeah, it's basically, well, half of it was outside and then some indoors, but it's basically the audience follows you and goes from one place to the next, so they don't just sit and, and watch. Yeah. And, and is it set at, like, a particular, like, sites in the city that the events take place? We we did not. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of places you have to get a permit from the municipality in order to uh, to do any event there, and it's a lot of paperwork and and a huge hassle. So we just ended up doing it in one big place, a uh, private space. Yeah. Huh. I'm curious. Um, I guess like I feel like based on all my conversations that I have with like Lebanese friends or theater makers, there's always this mythology around Beirut about like being the most liberal place in the Middle East. And that's constantly like reaffirmed and then contested by different things, specifically mm -hmm. pertaining to queer. So I'm curious, um, 
like when you realize when you had that realization you mentioned you had that moment where you realized you want to tell your story as a, as a queer woman on stage um what how did the community of theater makers or like the community of Beirut around you celebrate that or push back against that and how did like your work situate itself in relation to the theater scene that you were in well it's a it's a very singular time right now because we're in the middle of a revolution and so right. since october 19th um you know we've just been mostly in the streets uh, protesting blocking roads etc and so Um, when I did my play, it was more or less the first, one of the first theater uh, pieces to be made after the revolution started. So we're also very worried if people will show up, you know, if people are ready to do something else other than than being in the streets, etc. So timing was was very was very tricky. But at the same time, um, I had a lot of support around this play and the making of this play. Uh, and I also had a lot of people <clears throat> who expressed how nervous they were um, because mm-hmm. of uh, censorship. Mm-hmm. So every play that we do in, uh, or every TV show, every movie, you have to submit the script to the, a censorship bureau. And they have to approve of it, otherwise you can't perform it. I'm sure right it's 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 horrible it's horrible and it's humiliating and it's all sorts of things so yeah I want to hear how you got it through because like this summer we were talking and you were saying you were like nervous and trying to strategize different ways that you could get around it so right and and uh, so the way I, I I did that is actually my director uh, turned all the female pronouns into male pronouns, so it seemed as though I was addressing a man or talking about a man. And we removed all the parts related to queerness and sex and and the body. And, and this is one of my favorite things, is that instead you put the actor improvises. <laughs> because improvisation cannot be censored or, like, regulated. And so you just take out the parts and you put actor improvises. Oh, and I love that. Like, that's such uh, a testament to the power of improv. <laughs> <laughs> right? And so it ended up being a much shorter script um, about, a, like, a creepy hetero love story. Right, so <laughs> it was butchered, but it passed. I got the approval, and I was able to perform it. Is that the like the origin of your title? It's like this is not a memorized script. This is a, a well rehearsed story. Yeah. Um, well, no, it's not related to censorship. Although after uh, going through all of that, I'm like, oh, that works too. But um, the title say, actually. Yeah. Um, but the title actually came long before the play. So I had this, what I thought was a really cool title. And I'm like, oh, now I have to write a play because <laughs> I have a title. Um, and it's just, it's uh, kind of a nod to my background in storytelling and to the fact that this play, even its structure is, um, is it's subversive, it's queer, right? It's never performed in exactly the same way. I even, you know, memorized it towards the beginning of rehearsals and then barely looked at the script again. And so when I looked back at it, I realized that some things are completely different 
from the script but that's how i how they ended up being it did seem like a well-rehearsed story because i didn't memorize things word for word it's it's subversive but it's also so traditional just the idea that through repetition um, and oral history stories start to drift and change over time exactly and it's something i uh, i talk about in the play i talk about the unreliability of memory mm-hmm. how we think that we're telling the truth but that is absolutely impossible when we're remembering something where you know the first time we remember the event it's a memory and then the second time it's the memory of the memory and then so on and so forth and so every time we become extremely unreliable narrators so it's never the same yeah and i I think about that so much when it comes to like intergenerational storytellings um Mm -hmm. especially things that like Maybe people only tell you once, especially things involving some kind of trauma. Like usually you hear them once instead of hearing them repeated a bunch of times. Right. And you have to like reconstruct that understanding from what you have. Mm-hmm. There's also Absolutely. something fundamentally queer about decentering the notion of the narrator and the like oratorial storyteller who has like complete agency or knowledge. Uh, mm-hmm. I find to be really exciting, but that on top of the idea of not like having a rehearsed word, like rehearsed but not word to word script, like there's something fundamentally like rejecting rejecting the paradigms of like storytelling both in theater and like knowledge generally, and I find that to be really meaningful. Y'all is improv queer. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> love that. Could be, should be. Yeah. Uh, but then again, I think everything should be queer, so I'm really not a very good writer. I was about to say that. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you um, if you could talk a bit about your storytelling series and how that's changed over time. I started doing it in 2014, and it was in a little coffee shop with maybe 20 to 30 people attending. And I just basically made my friends, like, tell stories. I'm like, okay, you're not doing anything tonight. You're going to come tell the story. I just made them do it and then bought them a drink later. It was a very expensive (laughs) endeavor at the beginning because I just (laughs) ended up buying them drinks. And then after the first couple of times, I'm like, okay, well, that was fun. You know, I'm I'm not going to do this again. And then this woman comes up to me and she's like, when's the next one? And then I realized that they expected a next one. And I'm such a people pleaser. Well, I was. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, next month. (laughs) You know, five years later, it kind of grew into this uh, pretty big platform with around 150 to 200 people attending every month. And each month is around a different theme. But since the revolution started in October, we basically said as long as there's a revolution, the theme of the storytelling uh, nights will be revolution. So so that's what we've been doing, just telling stories about revolutionary things. Well, I, I was just going to ask how um, the revolution has influenced how you're thinking about your relationship to Beirut, because I remember something that was really striking for me in hearing your work last summer was how much Beirut was almost like, it's a one-woman show, but like Beirut is almost the second person on, or presence on stage. And I'm of curious, course. like, how revolutions changed that, not, no, not changed that, but how, like, that's continued to evolve in relation to the revolution. That's a very good question. It was, first of all, it was extremely surreal to be rehearsing for this play and 
you know, an ongoing revolution. Uh, we would, uh, I, I would wake up at 5 a.m., go and block roads, right, civil disobedience, then take a break, and then rehearse for three hours, and then in the evening we'd go back down to the square for, uh, for the protests. So it was, it was a way of life for a while, uh, you know, because universities and schools were closed, so I didn't have work. So all I was doing was roadblocking, rehearsing, protesting. And it felt like I've been doing this my entire life. It just felt like the only reality um, that the revolution and my play just existed forever. And then there's, there's a line um, I say in my play, right? I wrote this uh, last year, um, if not a year and a half ago. And the line says, um, yesterday I woke up with the certainty that holding hands with a woman I love in a street in Beirut will start a revolution. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, well, so it happened. So <laughs> <right>. <laughs> oh, my prophetic soul. Uh, and, um, and I will have you know that the t-shirt uh, you gave me that says, be gay, do crimes, <laughs> I wore it. I wore it to protest. Oh my god, I'm that best possible use of that shirt ever. That makes me so happy. <laughs> like one of the favorite things that I've enjoyed just on my social media from the Lebanese revolution is the number of like queer and gay memes and like oh, posters yes. that gay have been putting up in the revolution. It's just truly like a daily joy that I engage with every day. Um, oh my god, I guess yes. To stay on the subject of revolutions, I, I'm curious, like, again, like, Lebanon is constantly talked about as, like, one of the most progressive countries in the Middle East. Can you tell us more about, like, how the situation was for LGBT people before and if it's any different now, if, like, queerness was in any way part of why people are revolting? I'm, I'm sure not everyone, but, like, why some mm. people are revolting. So, so here's the thing. I mean, I can I cannot speak about, you know, the LGBTQ plus uh, people in the country, right? My my knowledge is very limited due to several reasons, right? I mean, I teach at university. I have my own place in a in a neighborhood that's um, pretty decent. So really, my contact uh, with LGBTQ plus people is my surroundings in Beirut. You go out of Beirut into villages, etc., then the experience is completely different, and I cannot even begin to imagine it, right? So. But what I can tell you about, um, definitely, is that from what I've heard and from what I know, it's definitely the more liberal city in the Middle East when it comes to, to gay rights or LGBTQ plus rights. But in the, in the law, we still have uh, a penal code, titled right. Penal Code 534, that states that any sexual act, um, act that goes against nature is unlawful. And so they use that to criminalize homosexuality. And for years, for years, for years, um, uh, they've arrested queer people, harassed them, beaten, beat them up. And then for a while, there was something called the egg test. And it's something that they subjected uh, gay men to uh, when they were arrested to insert an egg-shaped object into their <clears throat> anal cavity to and if it goes in that means they're gay and it was it, so horrible i mean right this is inhumane and um actually the um, the order of physicians and like the medical uh 
board had to interfere and say that anybody who uh, does that will be uh, will be arrested and they will uh, the physicians will be stripped of their medical license etc but for a while that was yeah. a reality i mean it took a while yeah. right um but as for the revolution one of the most beautiful things is how queers are at the center of it you know activists feminists queer people whenever you want to hear really amazing chants you go to where the queers are and they're always in the front lines of of the protests and the revolution and i think one of the beautiful things about what's going on right now is that it's very intersectional what we're fighting for and what we're demanding so the chants are very pro queer pro refugee pro migrant workers women's rights trans rights i never thought i would be in the streets of beirut and hear chants that were in support of trans people um it was it was beautiful so yes progress but at the same time really i mean there's a lot of fear there's a lot of risk of being uh, arrested and harassed not to talk about even this is without even tackling you know families who are conservative who if they find out that their son or daughter is uh gay um trans etc they could f- be um put in a lot of danger and even killed and so all of these truths uh coexist right but whatever ends up in the western media is the the sexy um you know the queer nightlife and all of that because that's what um we're either painted as liberal and come dance or um as victims those are the two existing narratives and nothing in between i was just going to talk about like reading an academic paper at some point about how like lgbt tours were made for like all these american tourists to come see like oh, gay babies it's like yeah. this gross orientalist like fetishized thing um and how like contrasting that was with like actual lived experiences of gay people in lebanon yeah yeah absolutely i actually um there's a little bit in my play that where i make fun of that and so i could read it if you want yeah go for it okay so i'm basically making fun of articles that are written by western media about uh the lgbtq plus life in beirut and it goes like this Lebanese writer Dima Matta struggles with her sexuality in an oppressive society. The Penal Code 534 clearly states that any sexual intercourse that goes against nature is unlawful. Matta is in the back seat of a taxi on a Friday night heading back home after a night out in the trendy area of Madam Khayyan. She is sharing the taxi with her date. Their hands are on the back seat next to each other not daring to touch. There's a lot of sexual tension in the city of Beirut at night. Things get awkward when it's time to drop her off because of the penal code. They cannot kiss goodnight. So they end up giving each other a hug and an apologetic smile. The penal code is hard to navigate. Meta represents every single queer person in her country in her latest play. Feel free to make sweeping generalizations. They will be correct ones. After all, one single story is all we need to assume the rest accurately. Oh wow. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I remember that article. It was like 
it's old, but it's still kind of on point. It's like every article about being gay in Beirut in one article. Ah, uh, yes. I know. It's totally... What I wrote is totally a nod <laughs> to that article. It was brilliant. It's, it's, and it was like 2007 or something like that, but it's like almost still on So point. relevant. Yeah, it's like... It, that, and it hasn't changed. Absolutely. And here's what's funny is that it's all about gay men, gay men, right? And and then the the very last line, (laughs) there are no lesbians in Beirut. And I thought that was so... (laughs) Well, I mean, it's a satirical, it's a satirical article. Even as a satirical article, that's hilarious. (laughs) It is hilarious. I mean, I laughed about, I still laugh Every time I read this this article or I talk about it, it's brilliant. And so when I when I wrote this, I'm like, now they will like Western media will talk to lesbians, uh, but they'll also <laughs> apparently yes. And well, then <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm the only lesbian in Beirut. No, I'm kidding. I uh, but we are like five. Um, it's very hard to date, but that's a whole other subject. Um, but yes, (laughs) so basically, um, they make it sound like we're, you know, we're, we're, we're these helpless victims, um, that have to do everything in hiding and just orientalizing, exoticizing and fetishizing the shit out of us. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck that. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess, well, since you have presented your work um, in the U.S. quite a bit, have you found you've received those attitudes in response, depending on what your audience is here? Mm, well, <laughs> it's, um, it's an interesting question because in my play, I uh, also say that everything I shared is very constructed and that the reason I shared it is because I'm comfortable with sharing it, right? And I, at some point, say, don't thank me for my vulnerability. And then when I get some of the comments I get um, afterwards is, thank you so much for your vulnerability. (laughs) It must be so difficult. And thank you so much to give us a glimpse of, uh, of Beirut and what it's like to be queer there. And I'm like, well, I just spent an hour. (laughs) Um, but then again, you know, when I, the, the readings I did in the States were early drafts. And so by the time I came to, to do it in Beirut last month, it had evolved a lot. And, and the way the whole uh, bit about how I'm controlling the narrative, uh, to a certain extent, right. That we decide what we share about ourselves, and if I'm talking about a failed relationship, the audience is only getting my side of the story, right? So uh, this makes it even more unreliable. And then at the end, I, um, me slash the character says, you know, don't thank me for my vulnerability. Um, if you're feeling a certain way, I made you feel that way. I made it happen. But this is also... At the same time, the character sort of breaks down. She realizes that actually not not much is in her control. You know, she cannot control what the audience is feeling. She cannot control their uh, response um, to whatever she was saying. And that also 
she has no control over her narrative and her life and her emotions and 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 it's something that actually lisa crone uh taught me uh, at sundance and she said the audience has to see the character lose control definitely one of the best pieces of advice i've uh, gotten about character development for background info lisa crone was also adam's roommate at sundance people listening you're so lucky you are so lucky i still tell everybody i fucking meet about that and how exciting it was (laughs) and i'm just like the writer of fun home was just casually sharing a kitchen with me (laughs) like i know i i say that they were like my they were my dramaturg uh during sundance but then i also add that i took naps next to Lisa Crone. Like, for some reason, it just felt okay to take naps uh, next to her. So... Uh, I remember yeah. waking up really hungover one day and, like, climbing up to the kitchen and Dima was just, like, sitting there in the balcony in the Utah forest and I was like, damn, this is this is gonna be an experience. <laughs> right? I'm, you know, you, you really... I never thought I would be in the middle of Utah, right? All the way from Beirut. And I'd be in this gorgeous uh, place surrounded by trees and birds. And I'm on, you know, the the balcony smoking a cigarette. And Lisa Crone is, like, getting hummus and, and carrots out of the fridge. And there's a, an Egyptian, you know, theater uh, maker also sharing the apartment, coming uh, out of his bedroom hungover. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, so this happened in my life. <laughs> That's a thing now. Additional context for people listening, Bassem Yusuf was also there. Oh, my God, ah, yes. yes. <laughs> I had so much FOMO hearing about this. Like, there's no reason I would even be there, and I still had FOMO. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, right. it was definitely or what's beautiful. The, I don't know. What's the, I guess FOMO isn't accurate. It's like the sadness of having this doubt going SOMO? Yeah, Somo. Yeah. Somo. So, yeah, that's basically Sundance. That sums up Sundance in a sentence. And how has uh, the reception to your piece been in Beirut post-revolution? What are some things people have told you? What are, like, things you're learning through the process of putting it up? Definitely, I had a lot of people tell me that it was definitely a play that was needed, and it was brave, and... um, that uh, a lot of people even said they identified with the with the character and that it um, you know things resonated and echoed and that was beautiful and there was a playwright who actually told me he said you know the play is good but it should be done in Arabic right because I perform in English and they I provided subtitles uh, or surtitles, um, but he said, this play needs to be heard in Arabic. That's when it would be at its most powerful. To hear all these words about gender, queerness, identity, etc., being said out loud in Arabic. And I definitely agree, right? And I And it's language is something I address in the play as well. I actually pause in the middle of the play and I switch to Arabic and I say, I don't want to apologize that I'm not using Arabic. English is not supposed to be 
my first language. It's not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm more comfortable in it. You know, I studied it for years and years. And then I lived in the States for two years. And now I teach it. And so my creative writing happens in that language. And so if I just feel guilty about that, then I would just be quiet. And then I would never write. And I would never perform and so I don't want that. Um, so I'm using English and I'm being unapologetic about it. Um, but I definitely understand um, his point of view that, yes, these words would be very, very powerful if they were spoken spoken in Arabic in this country. Would you consider a translation at some point or an Arabic reimagining? Um, I don't know. Um Maybe, and, and I mean the, the, the translation already exists, right? We, we did it right. for the surtitling. Yeah. It's just a performance. Yeah, I, I don't know, because also part of the play is that even though I, I write in, um, in English and I speak English and all of that, I still feel like I have a certain distance from it. It's not my language. And I say in the play, you know, I, I sound a bit off like I'm one degree away from myself. And so it's this distance that I have with the language that also allows me to talk about things that are hard to talk about here, you know, gender identity and queerness. So if that gets translated into Arabic, you know, that part goes away. Yeah, Yeah, it's like losing a certain shield. Or a layer. Yeah, definitely one of the layers would, would go away. I mean, that's something I actually find that to be really exciting because it is like, especially what you're saying about like acknowledging your positionality and like the language you speak and the language you speak best and are more more comfortable with. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it goes back to this idea of what you were saying earlier as well about kind of the authority of the narrative and what you're choosing to tell and what you're choosing not to tell. I think Mm -hmm. like... Speaking it in English is also making a statement about your class and like your background and identity. And in a lot of ways, it's it's hel- it's helping shed light on the fact that like this is your experience and not every other experience. Which is to say that like mm-hmm. I have the same with my own writing where where again like people are like oh my god you're so brave for doing this and I'm like no not really like I'm privileged because I live in the like. For now, I live in the U.S. in a certain way. And so I'm able to do things that I probably would not do if I lived somewhere else. Or I'm able to, mm-hmm. or I have, like, certain access to, like, protection in different ways. Um, and so I, I love when artists are able to, like, acknowledge that. And, like, in, like, being very specific in that way or do something that ensures that people don't think of them as just representative of everybody else who shares that identity. Absolutely. And I didn't want anybody to think that. And I also didn't want to think, I didn't want queer people here to think that I'm speaking on their behalf, because I would, I would never, never do that. And it's what's interesting is that a few days after I, I, um, you know, did the performances in Beirut, I was invited um, to university to talk to students who went to see the performance. So it was a um, feminism and autobiography uh, class. There were 20 women and, and one man in the class. And so when they opened the floor for questions, the man raises his hand and he says, um, don't you feel... 
don't you feel that your play was elitist because you talk about you know language and uh, constructs and signifiers and signified and Jacques Lacan and I don't know who like don't you feel it's um, elitist and I said well you know people in order to watch my play have to pay for the ticket not everybody can right. afford to pay to attend the play and then it's in English we also provide subtitles but the play is in English so already if you want to talk about elitist practices why not say that theater is one to begin with because you do have to pay and it's it's not cheap and we're in the middle right. of a financial crisis in this country so right. definitely we have to be aware of all of these things when we're doing when we're creating art because it doesn't exist in a vacuum especially in times like these in times of revolution and financial crisis and we're revolting against all of these things what do you think is the purpose of art in revolution yeah, that's a broad question. Let's go with it. <laughs> well, you know, um, when the the first few weeks of the revolution, uh, we had a lot of meetings as artists from different fields to talk about exactly that. And the question was not what is the role of art in the revolution, but does art have a role or should art have a role in the revolution and a lot a lot of artists said that right now we don't need poetry about revolutions we need people to be in the streets right we need numbers right and so and i completely agree with that but then the more time passed the more we realized we're in this for the long haul this is not something that's going to um and in a few months, and it's not going to be resolved. It's not going to yield results anytime soon. And so we cannot live on hold. This is when art has more space uh, because it uh, gives a chance for people to reflect and gives them space to, to have a conversation, right? A dialogue. And it's something we've uh, that's been taken away from us for the longest time. I mean, we don't have public spaces in this country and so when we took over uh you know the town downtown area for our protests one of the beautiful things that happened is that we felt like we owned our streets again and so one of the things that uh plays uh do and other forms of art is that they also offer space for conversations conversations that need to happen and that should happen and this is where queer art, that's, you know, like, that is the definition of revolutionary. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. We're having a conversation actually on this podcast, less about revolution specifically, more about art and activism and how mm -hmm. um, a lot of people, like, might claim and have pretty decent arguments for why art is essential to social movements, but sometimes it's hard to justify like doing that instead of doing like grassroots organizing or like hardcore political organizing. Um, and I think it does come down to what you're saying about sustainability. Like even the people I know who basically do hardcore grassroots political organizing or like hardcore campaigning around certain topics, um, they can't keep that up forever without having some kind of personal toll or like needing some kind of artistic practice to mm -hmm. reflect of course there's a lot of political practices that are 
rooted in like dealing with the very practical realities of what we have now um and a lot of like mm-hmm. harm reduction a lot of like dealing with the current system but then if you're so only caught up in that it's like we can't imagine anything that could exist outside of that and art making can often be a space for that imagining like what what else could there be even if we're not close to achieving it right now that is absolutely true and and the thing is i i think that things are not mutually exclusive right if there are these grassroots uh grassroots movements and and people in the streets and people you know lawyers working on policy change and all of that then there should also be artists working on that because we're we're all working towards the same thing i don't have any knowledge of of how to change uh policy and i don't know how to talk about the economy or you know uh, do non-profit work but i do know how to make art and i know how to tell stories and i know how to hold space for people to do that and that is also a form of activism so we all need to be useful where we can be useful um and i think that's that's essential right to to go where you're needed right and also i i totally believe in like artists getting on the streets and doing political activism in the most straightforward way if you're going to say that you're artist activism like also mm-hmm. be political in the most literal way but that doesn't have to be of course the only way well it's just that you know art um is revolutionary in the sense that you know the government is afraid of art okay, people are going to say the exact books. same thing i was going to say um <laughs> someone once said that like this is an egyptian dance artist and he said that um people told him that like dance is meaningless or silly but then why did the government want to censor his dance practice if it's so meaningless or silly like censorship is exactly. evidence of why yeah. this is important yeah people are afraid the government is afraid of us um and if that is not uh proof that that art is important then i don't know what is you know and Absolutely. i also get the notion that um artistic practice is somehow fundamentally different from other types of activism or more like direct protest because i i really believe that they're often like feed into each other people who come see theater that can be an impetus for engaging in political action and then like living through the egyptian revolution like i saw that in a very direct way and mm-hmm. so i i really do that like even i mean not that i'm saying people shouldn't protest people artists should protest but like even if you are not protesting and your work is deeply political in its content and in the communities you're engaging with that has a profound impact so like if not mm-hmm. just like the work itself but thinking about like how you're situating your work within like community de- community development initiatives and things like that that is all like a part of what it means to be a political agent and a political citizen and engaging your practice in that definitely yes 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 absolutely on that note um is there another excerpt you'd like to read yes i'd actually like to share um a part also about um because you know i i spoke earlier about western media uh, exoticizing us but also we tend to 
uh, engage in auto-exoticization or we tend to romanticize our struggles and what we've been through and our traumas and kind of use them as, a, as an excuse for a lot of things. And so I wrote about that too. So I'll share that. Um, whenever I want to wallow in self-pity, I repeat the same story. I say that my parents survived 15 years of civil war. I was in my mother's belly when she was escaping Beirut under heavy bombing. I inherited trauma. After my uncle was kidnapped and killed, my mother became severely depressed. They say that mental health problems are hereditary. Then I say, I was born with a disadvantage. These are the stories I tell myself when I need to feel better. No, not better, but to justify my anxiety. To justify why I get startled when the doorbell rings or when my phone rings or when I hear fireworks. One day I told my friend to call me in two minutes and when the phone rang, I got startled. A student of mine coughed in class. I gasped. I am not okay. But it's okay because civil war, trauma, inherited memories. Why am I anxious and staying in bed all day? Civil war, trauma, and inherited memories. <laughs> Why do I cancel plans at the very last minute? Civil war, trauma, inherited memories. It's easy to blame others, isn't it? So, oh, actually, I'd like to share a couple of lines. I think spending two years away in my early 20s from Beirut made me romanticize the shit about the city, uh, out of the city. I wrote about it, about Feirouz and the smell of Zatar on a mother's skin. My mom's skin smelled of cigarettes and Vaseline. <laughs> I feel so stupid in retrospect. So yeah, that's just kind of um, some of my thoughts on how we also feed into the Western narrative, right? When, when we write, especially if we write in, uh, in English, when we get interviewed, right? It's, yeah. um, sometimes it takes an active effort to stay away from that narrative. I definitely um, thought about that when writing the play. That second one, like, that's definitely a thing I've actively thought about, um, having to avoid that, like, diaspora romance narrative as, mm -hmm. like, a Lebanese-American who often gets asked to talk and write about things I haven't directly experienced. I can imagine, yes. Yeah. What's been your response to talking a lot about mental health in your work? Because that's also something that I think there's a, a lot of ways to go in terms of breaking the stigma. It's something I've also been doing through the storytelling platform. We dedicate um, storytelling events to, to talk about mental health, and I've been very outspoken about suffering from generalized anxiety disorder, how it is to, to live with that, and I think that's one of the ways I can help people. If I share, then other people will know that they're not alone. They'll feel that it's okay to share um, because so many people have so much shame around this that they don't tell anybody. They don't seek help. And so one of the ways to start deconstructing this is to try to normalize it, to talk about it. Right. And I mean, obviously, you're kind of making fun of how it can become an excuse for anything, but, like, also mm -hmm. what you bring up is true. Like, intergenerational trauma does, like, has been shown to contribute to anxiety, so, like... Of course. There's a bunch of people walking around with anxiety disorders and in a culture where we don't feel comfortable talking about them. 
I know that's definitely true, right? It's uh, it's something that does exist, and at the same time, when there's a difference between acknowledging its existence and then using it to justify right, everything. Right. You know, I don't wake up every morning thinking about 15 years of civil war. Right. Right. <laughs> That's, um, and so just to kind of use that as an excuse, especially in narratives, um, you know, going back to that satirical article that was written about um, being gay in, uh, in Beirut, you know, everything was blamed on the civil war. Right. Um, you know, we are who we are because of it. And to a certain extent, it's true, but also... Also, there's you more. Know, yeah. There's more. There's more to life. Exactly. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you're doing in New York? Uh, sure. I'm heading to New York next month to work with uh, Theater Me Too on my play and to actually integrate technology into the play because theater me too is it's kind of known to um to produce uh plays that definitely have a tech aspect to them and so basically we're going to uh, have a lab for for 10 days where we just play with the with the play basically and see what comes out and then and then i'll be performing on the 16th 17th 18th and 19th of april Cool. Do you have any particular ideas of how you're going to incorporate tech into the piece, or you're just going to play around, and figure it out there? Oh, I'm I'm just I'm just showing up. I I am so not tech savvy. I mean, a micro my a microphone for me is is technology, right? Like that is the extent of my knowledge. So I'm just I'm just going to be there as like a human. Well, I'm excited to see it. Thanks. I'm excited to to experience all of that. I'm. Uh, I'm sure I have uh, a lot to learn from the from the Me Too troop. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to hear your voice again, uh, and so excited to see you next month. Thank you so much. I mean, the the pleasure is all mine. It's basically just a great pleasure to contribute to the Queer Arab podcast and also to just basically hang out with you uh, yeah, across yeah. continents. <laughs> Um, where can people follow or find you or learn more about your work? So far on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, uh, the storytelling uh, platform is called Cliffhangers. And it's also on uh, Facebook and Instagram. So my work is, um, is on there too. Amazing. Oh, I didn't know it was accessible in that way. I'm really excited to dig into that. Yeah. Let me know what you think. Definitely, yeah. Cool, well, thank you so much, both of you. And I'm very excited to see you both uh, next month in April. Yes. We're so excited to. Hugs. Virtual hugs. Bye. We'll wear our uh, matching uh, t-shirts. <laughs> oh my god, please. Yeah. So excited. Thank mm-hmm. you.